What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. This is episode number 104. We did it. We made it to two years. Quick, insert the sound of me blowing one of those like those party things, those party blowers. Do they have a sure. name? I, don't I feel know. like I went through the same conversation a year ago. Yeah, we did it. Two two years of draft chaff. We've been chaffing the draft for for two years now, and uh, well, people aren't that tired of us yet. <laughs> so I guess we'll keep going. I guess not. We still have listeners. In any case, I'm Zach. I'm one of your hosts, and joining me as per usual, Ben Fisher. What's up, dude? So what? Two years. I mean, two years. Two years. Two years. Oh, my God. We have a, uh, a bit of a mailbag spectacular to go on here, and I'm excited for these questions. Yeah, we got some awesome ones. But before we jump into all of that, of course, it might be our second year anniversary, but we still have some usual housekeeping to take care of. If you're not in the Discord, check that out. This is where we collected all of our questions for this episode. So if you were curious about how to get those submitted and well, after this episode, we're back to getting our usual one question per episode listener question of the week. So that is where you can drop those as well in the discord. Check that out. The link to that is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. Huge thanks to all of our patrons who have continued to support us each and every week and have helped us make it to this milestone of having a podcast running for two years. You guys are part of the show here. Like you, you guys are helping us stay afloat and keep doing this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for continuing to support us. Perks over there include things like stickers, show notes, unedited recordings of the show and our draft chat viewer cards sent right to your door signed by us. And Ben usually does a fancy little fun art alteration to it as well. And again, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. Now we're also going to be submitting Actually, as part of the episode description for this episode, we're going to be sending out a form to submit for anybody who's listening that wants to give feedback on the show and things that we would like to take and apply going into our third year here. So we'd love to get your feedback on those things. Check out the episode description for that link. It'll also be posted in an announcement in the Discord as well. And if you'd like to submit any other sort of feedback for the show, things you'd like to see us do better, things you'd like to see us do worse, let us know. We're happy to oblige and um, we'd love to hear your feedback on all those things. So we're going to skip the, the crack draft type thing this week because we've got a lot of questions to answer. And before we do that, of course, we're going to jump into our Terry Tibble. And so, Ben. Right. So we're going to share a high and a low from the week, kind of our roses and thorns style thing. Zach, why don't you kick it off? All right. Well, my Teferi this week is, of course, the anniversary. I, I think that kind of speaks for itself. It's just kind of surreal to be able to say that we're, we've been doing this long enough to hit a two-year mark. Most yeah. things like this that I've picked up in my own just like for fun have not lasted that long. So uh, it's just pretty awesome to have have a hobby like this keep up for this long. I, I don't know exactly how true this is, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say most things don't last two years. Yeah, I feel like that's probably hyperbole, <laughs> but we'll, we'll uh, go with it. Think about it. Have you ever heard that question? Are there more wheels or doors on Earth? I have not heard that question. My guess would probably be doors because most cars have four wheels and four doors but there are houses that have doors which don't have wheels. Yeah, I guess there's not a lot of things that have wheels but not, do- well, bikes, uh, roller skates. I don't know. I, I think the things that That's have true. wheels tend to have a lot of them. I don't know. I, I feel like it's on a, a, a similar order of magnitude. In the same sort of general, like, general spread type ideas, I feel like most things last under two years. I don't know. That's one to look up. I, I'm very curious. <laughs> uh, Google I, will tell I, us. The word things is carrying a ton of weight in this sentence, but uh, I'm curious to hear what the listener has to say. L- listener, let us know. First of all, are there more wheels or doors 
on Earth. And second of all, do most things last under two years? Mo- mo- things being, you know, in a very general sense. Well, in any case, my tibble this week is that my dog has been acting weird. She's usually like very nondescript. Like she just doesn't do anything. She sleeps pretty much all day. And occasionally, very rarely, she'll like get excited and want to play. But the last couple of days, she's been not really wanting to eat. And her stomach's been making these like crazy grumbly noises. My guess, basically, I went to see my parents and I was traveling and I bring her with me and there's like a two hour car car ride and she's not a big fan of cars. And she did. She did a great job. She usually just like pants a lot the whole time, like but she doesn't really she's not like a nuisance in the car. But to celebrate or to, to, you know, reward her for doing a good job, even though she's not going to associate it as such. I got her like this new bone and it had like like a beef filling, I guess, in the center. And I think she's having trouble digesting that. Hmm. In any case, she's acting like the world was ending, basically. (laughs) And then it it like thundered this morning. We had a big storm and she hates thunder. So that just exasperated it. She seems to be back to normal now, but it was like a day and a half of just like, yeah, yeah. There's like a day and a half of her just like being weird, though. I will say when I come over, she'll usually just kind of get up and set her head on top of whatever magic game we're playing. She'll, she'll like put her head on top of my commander deck or something. So, yeah, uh, I don't know. I, dogs be weird. Indeed. What's up with you? Uh, I'll start with my tibble in like a general sense. It's it's rough at the moment for me to, to be a, a Ben Fisher on Earth. I mean, it's the end of the school year. Things are a little dull. Things are a little dreary. Other personal stuff going on. It's like, eh. It's not the best time, but thankfully there's plenty of teferis to balance out the, the, that tibble, which is that, first of all, two years. Like, that's insane. The fact that, I guess I don't know how how much I expected us to get in this in, 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 in general, like overall. But then again, if anyone was going to, like, I think we're both pretty persistent people and, and pretty determined and both pretty, like, able to commit to things and be like, yeah, we're doing this. So I think in that sense, I'm not, I'm not that surprised because it's barely felt like time has passed. It feels like That's we're still true. on week four. <laughs> like we're, we're still learning things and and trying to grow the show in new ways and taking feedback. And if we ever stopped doing that, I think you know, that'd be a problem. But honestly, it's it's awesome. And uh, it, you know, it it's just so cool. <laughs> like I think maybe at this potentially upcoming big Vegas, the, the gathering, bring, bring back the gathering, whatever this thing is, maybe we can swing to, to show up there and have some sort of like post two year celebration with anyone else that, that could come from our audience so listeners out there um i don't know would you want to come to vegas hang out with us play some magic play some commander do other vegas things <laughs> well uh some of the teferis um i got a bunch of refunds from my magic online account where i kept running into bugs one i had like a game-breaking glitch where the entire moto just crashed another one i discarded two cards to fable of the mirror breaker and i didn't draw any <laughs> and i was like wait a minute I thought that was supposed to be a rummage effect. I thought I'm supposed to get two cards back. I ended up losing because of that. Uh, so I got that. That was nice. I can keep playing Vintage Cube. I played with some students at my school. We, we were playing a little limited tournament. We were playing Zendikar Rising, and I, I won the tournament. And uh, you know that was fun. I tried not to be you know too much of like a, a hoity-toity end boss or anything. But I just played my deck out. I did have the worst deck at the table, which I felt good about because I felt like that. The universe had kind of balanced for me a little bit. My deck was abysmal. It was black-white with no clerics. So <laughs> those that know ZNR know that that's not where you want to be. But I had a bunch of good removal, and I just played my curve out well. And uh, I, I gave the students a challenge, which I think they needed, because they were like, wow, this is a lot different than Commander, which they're used to playing. And a lot of them loved it. Uh, they loved the deck building, and they loved playing with lower power cards, which 
a lot of them are beginner players, and I think it might have been uh, an appropriate speed for them. And last but not least, my students know that I love Lego flowers. And when they saw that they released a new Lego flower set the other day, they were all so excited to tell me. And I thought that was the funniest thing. Like someone messaged me today. They sent a picture of them getting it at school and they're like that at, uh, at the Lego store. And they're like, Oh my God, thank you so much for telling us about this. Like, <laughs> this is great. You better go get one now while they still have it in stock. And I was like, you know what? I think I will. So uh, Lego flowers. If you haven't seen them, go look them up. Sweet. Well, we have a mailbag episode to do. So we're going to skip the listener question of the week. These are all listener questions. And thank you all to, to those of you who, who did submit questions. We did get quite a few of them and we were pretty excited to go through these. We tried our best not to read through them. Some of them did require some like forethought. So we had to read a couple of them, but for the most part, we're going into this blind. So Ben, do you want to kick us off with the first one? Yeah. Now, one thing I want to mention, everyone that submitted listener questions, we are tossing our, their names into a hat. And at the end of the show, maybe we'll pull one, set them a nice box of custom draft chaff dragon shield sleeves, which are just fantastic. I use them in my draft kit. Uh, they, they really are the best. Yeah. Both of us use them for our, for our draft kits and uh, you too can rock some draft chaff <laughs> swag at the draft table. So you'll be one of three people on earth with uh, <laughs> custom draft chaff sleeves. They do look awesome. Yeah. And they hold up really well. Good quality yeah. stuff. All right, so let's start it off with a question from Dorigan. So you often talk about your jobs, but what do you think you'd do if you suddenly couldn't continue in the career you're in? So this is a question I've had, I've been thinking about a lot for the last handful of years. Um, I'm a big, like, some of you know this, some of you don't know this. On the side, like, I'm really into personal finance, and I help folks with, like, personal finance stuff. Um, And part of that is helping myself with my own personal finance stuff. And so I'm very big into, like, the passive income or... I like to call it asset generated income stuff because passive income is kind of a myth. You know, most passive income streams take a ton of active work to get started before you can actually collect the income passively. So in any case, the answer for me to this question is that I would build other businesses. I'm a software developer slash DevOps engineer by like education. So I have a computer science degree. So I'd probably start trying to build some kind of app or like web app or something like build a a SaaS business, which is really popular right now. Um, I'm really heavily getting into real estate investing. So that's another area of income that I'd probably pursue. And I'm also working on trying to build a copywriting business Hmm. on the side, like like making money from writing. So those are some things that I'm working with. Who knows if any of those will actually turn into something that will generate even close to a full time income. But those are kind of the avenues I would I would dive even more into if I had the extra time from not being at a nine to five. I've thought about this question a little bit, especially in the last year where my teaching job wasn't really panning out the way that I had expected. And my background is in physics and astrophysics with and, and my grad degrees in physics ed specifically. So I think I'm I'd say I'm a pretty specialized person towards teaching people about science. So I, I think my first thing would be something similar. Uh, of course, Dorgan's question is that like you suddenly couldn't c- continue in this exact career. I'm going to swing it a bit and say I'd probably want to work at a museum somewhere where mm-hmm. I could continue being a science educator and giving tours or running demonstrations, things like that. I've thought about like curriculum work too, but probably hate that <laughs> if I tried it. Other uh, teachers out there, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but like that there's a certain magic of, of like being in a classroom that feels really difficult to give up. Um, but I would love to work in a professional astronomy field, uh, go back, do research. I loved doing any kind of lab or, or research in college. And um, I've got some of my, my lab data framed on my wall because <laughs> uh, it looks so cool. I mean, I was, I was imaging galaxies. So 
Um, when you do that kind of thing, it, it sticks with you. That'd be something I'd, I'd love to get back into someday. Because honestly, with technology these days, if you can, if you're good enough at coding, which I'm not. So if I have a friend who's good enough at coding, wink, wink, then you can just go get some chain link fence and some some wires and go build a radio telescope at home someday. Someday. That's that's actually really interesting. My I have like follow up questions for you on that because you and I have never really talked about like your career. I mean, we've never really talked about mine either, but like yours is a little more ambiguous to me, I think. So we have briefly talked about you like ever going into like professorship. Does that require a doctorate or like could you do that with your current degrees? So speaking from just what I know and, and all the other teachers out there listening, of which there are there are several uh, can comment on this further. A lot of the professors out there, basically, it sucks to be a professor right now. It sucks to be a teacher right now in some ways, too. But professors out there right now have it rough. If you're not a tenured professor at a university and you don't have like consistent research work, you're likely an adjunct. And if you're an adjunct, your union is probably trying as hard as it can, but probably not succeeding that well, at least speaking from experience where, where I taught uh, in, in when I was in college uh, as a, a part-time lecturer. So from that perspective, your work is inconsistent. You might not, you're probably not making that much. And if the school doesn't want to run your class or they want to get someone else, that's it. Like there's not exactly job security. So in order to have like a full-time professor job, you probably have to start maybe like a smaller school and probably have a PhD in in something if you really want to, you know, make yourself, give yourself a fighting chance and uh, kind of make yourself necessary (laughs) to them, Mm -hmm. uh, make yourself indispensable. And then you can kind of slowly work up the rungs from there. To be honest, that sounds like a lot of bureaucracy that I don't think I'd be able to handle. Sure, um, there's a lot to it, and honestly, that's one of the best ways to get like research uh, to become like an astronomy researcher. But there's also a lot of privilege that goes into that from, from the back end. Um, you need connections, you need money, you need time, and uh, I don't have <laughs> too many of those. But so, so in the private sector, like, what does could you go to like SpaceX or NASA or something and get a job there doing research or? Is that just possibly, although to be honest, I'd probably want to go back right now. I have my master's in physics ed, which uh, it is specialized towards education. And I'd consider myself like a content expert in physics, but I would probably want to go back and like get another physics degree or another astrophysics degree, whether in like applied or um, some other astronomy field, some other specialization before I went to applied any of those. I never tried looking into uh, like job jobs at uh, at NASA or SpaceX or anything, but I'd have to imagine there's positions out there for people like me, people with a very strong knowledge in physics, but maybe just hadn't initially gone through that that life path, you know, like hadn't started as like an intern there. I don't know, but people that work there got to get there somehow, right? Yeah, for sure. I just didn't never really know like what specific application your like specialization goes into because I, I just neither. know you as like a teacher. <laughs> so I don't know how the private sector looks for any of that kind of stuff. But that's yeah. that's interesting. You know, actually, I had a I had a friend at school tell me once that banks love hiring former physics and math teachers because sometimes banks will just need people that are just good with numbers, good with the math, good at you know understanding systems, and that's really what physics is. So I guess uh, you know I could always hop into a bank job. Yeah. All right. Our next question here is: What's your favorite dumpling? Oh man, that's rough. I'm I'm gonna have to say some sort of soup dumpling just because it's I feel like it has the the most enjoyable bite, you know, because we're, we're like splitting hairs here. All the like flavors. Um, I actually listened to a podcast about this. Uh, you should check them out sometime. I'll link it later. But uh, flavors it would just be impossible for me to pick a, a top. I think honestly, the fact that a soup dumpling is such like a fun experience and like 
that there's a little bit of drama where you you got to be sure not to pop it because if you do, then your friends are all going to point and laugh. And uh, when you get that perfect soup dumpling bite, it's just pure heavenly. I think I've got to go with soup dumplings. Soup dumplings have a high ceiling, super low floor, right? Like you can mm. totally mess them up, but when they're yeah. done right and you eat them properly, so good. Yeah. For me, it's gyoza. Hands down, gyoza are my favorite dumplings, particularly gyoza from Robangi in Hoboken. Uh, mm. that's, that's the best place I've been in recent memory, at least, that, that uh, does gyoza. But You heard it here first, folks. Go to Hoboken, check them out. We're not sponsored, but maybe we could be. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I, uh, I don't know about that, but they do make delicious gyoza. Perfectly crispy, but then also just like really delicious filling. Next up, how many MTG content creators who are slash were also teachers can you name? Uh, I'm going to go with, I, I can't remember if Alex Nikolic was a teacher or not, but he does now teach. Uh, does that count? Yeah. Like he, he teaches magic to people. Does that count? That's true. I mean, how many magic players out there haven't taught another person to play magic really anyone that's taught someone to play magic is a teacher right? yeah i'm I know gonna, what the I'm gonna assume dorgan means yeah teacher by <laughs> like profession teachers so i can't remember if alex nicolick was a teacher like an actual teacher or not so maybe he counts or doesn't ben Werney was a teacher or still is a teacher you're a teacher dorgan's a teacher i think that and then we've got uh we've got another uh person in the discord at least one other person in the discord who's a teacher but i don't know if he makes content so i'm not going to include them there uh, mm. those are the three that I can think of off the top of my head. Honestly, there is a pretty big overlap between magic players and teachers. Just something we've noticed. I referenced it a bunch of times just in, in, in the last 10 minutes or so, but uh, I've noticed a lot on, on magic Twitter and things like that. There's a good number of teachers uh, to the point where we even have like magic kids, which is like a, a huge charity specifically focused on finding those teachers that play magic, giving them supplies to give out to kids, which is just awesome. Uh, those listening just, just go check out Magic Kids. I, I worked with them this year. They sent me so much good stuff and they pretty much single-handedly allowed me to get six or seven of my students into Magic. It, it was awesome. Uh, and I, I still have tons of supplies left over too. So our next question here is, what's your favorite secret layer? Ooh, good one. I will say I've only ever purchased one secret layer. So I guess that would by default have to be my favorite. Uh, and that was Thalia uh, because I, I love Thalia. I love her in the stories. I love the art. I love what Thalia does. I love both Thalia cards that have been printed. And they're the only sleeves that I use on Arena. <laughs> I've got my trusty Thalia sleeves that I got thanks to that, that secret layer. There's some good ones, though. I actually wanted to mention that the ones that came out with the, the recent drop are fantastic uh, art-wise. I don't know about value-wise, but some of the art in them is, is just stunning. I think Chris Ron might have gotten one in, the, in this new one. There are a few artist series. I love the Theros Constellation God ones as well. I've thought about picking up some of those gods just as, as singles. How about you? Yeah, I've actually never purchased a, a secret layer. I guess I would default to saying my favorite is the summer bash one from like a year or two ago because they printed Spellcrawler in it and mm. the art in that Spellcrawler is phenomenal. I, I kind of like the direction they've taken secret layers in general where like the first one was just abysmal. The whole Walking Dead thing. Everybody, you know, <laughs> remembers if you were playing Magic at that time, you remember the whole debacle with that. But yeah. Since then, I feel like they've really course corrected and found a solid spot to take secret layers and they've become this sort of sure they're very cash grabby, but like nobody needs to buy them 
And so it's very much a, I resonate with this product. And so I'm going to throw the cash at it to get the thing that I want to get, which I think is great. I, I think it's much better to do it that way than to have like unique game pieces that people have to get through this product in order to play the cards that they want to play. Um, when it comes like when you're turning the secret layer into just a cosmetic upgrade, then I, I think it's really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that they've given some just they've given some chances for artists to just do wacky stuff. I, I love that. Uh, yeah, what was the math one? Wasn't there like a math one a little while ago? You and I, I remember you and math I were talking about magic. it. Yeah. Yeah. That one was phenomenal. Very, yeah. very unique and um, creative. The one it had like a, wasn't there like a planes hidden in one of the, there was one that had a, a peel off card. That's I think it. That was, that was like an art collab. Um, with kind of like a, uh, almost like a streetwear brand. That one I thought was sick. Just, it was really good. Um, just because of how weird it is. And sure. Not everyone's going to like it. You're going to take some risks here and you're going to alienate some people, but the people that love it are going to love it. And those are your target demographic, right? Like those people that'll buy it. I thought the, the I mean, what we've seen, we've seen a lot of uh, brand IP crossover ones. Honestly, the Street Fighter, pretty cool. Not my thing. I'm happy for the people that, that like it. Same with Stranger Things. Um, I'm That's gra- the thing I love about the secret layers, yeah. though, is like you're talking. I mean, you mentioned it briefly. there, like alienating certain folks. And one thing that like when you get really into the content creation world, you hear a lot is like if you make content for everyone, you make content for no one. And I think they are very much taking that sort of approach where like you're you're making stuff that's super targeted. You're really only trying to get a very specific subset of magic players interested in this small product that is a secret layer of whatever type it is. But those people are going to be super happy because they they got that thing. And the rest of us, if you're not into it, then like you don't have to buy it. And that's it. Just just ignore it. Yeah, I love the ones especially where they just pick artists and say, all right, Go nuts. Do anything you want. The Pride one was actually an example of that where they just picked a bunch of LGBTQ artists and were like, all right, make some cool gay art. <laughs> and, it, and it worked. It came out awesome. Some of the other ones, like the artist series in particular, those ones ha- have often resulted in stunning stuff. Said McKinnon's, of course, fantastic. Um, some of the, the, the wackier ones, there was one that kind of was like s- slimes and oozes. That one was cool. It's, it's nice when maybe things that don't get as much love all the time in magic, like weird creature types or or a weird card type or something, get a cool treatment. And also, I like it, a little controversial here, I like it when magic cards don't look like magic cards. I like it when they're jarring and make you go, wait, like what, what is that? <laughs> What's going on here? Is that still a card? I think it's cool to, to be able to own unique game pieces should you like them. So uh, Secret Layer, sure, it's, it's some nonsense in some ways. But overall, if you don't want to buy them, you don't have to. And uh, they're giving the chance for artists to get paid and make some cool stuff in the process that we can buy if we want it. Thanks, Dorgan, for the question. Next up, question from Mina Kang. What was the card that made you fall in love with magic? This is a tough question for me. You're going real far back, and I'm not sure I even actually remember what that card was because I was like a little kid at the time. Hmm. The first card that jumped to mind, though, was somewhat ironically Shivan Dragon, which is a card really? we have not seen printed in like a million years, but was like quintessential. It, used it was to like print the, it every day. <laughs> right. It was the quintessential magic card. Like every everybody who played it. magic knew about Shivan Dragon. And uh, so that was like the first one. That was the first one that jumped to mind that I remember opening and being like, oh, cool, a dragon. Like I can mm. play this and kill people with it. And it had like fire breathing on it. And I mean, the first Planeswalker open was a Johnny Goldmane and that was like one of the first Planeswalkers printed. So that was also very cool. And just kind of seeing oh, there's this other dynamic of game pieces in this game that kind of changes the way that the game works, I thought was pretty interesting. I'm not so sure where I sit on the fence of, like, should they have ever made Planeswalkers in the first <laughs> place? I know that's, like, its own conversation, but yeah. uh, those are the two that I'm thinking of that that made me, like, get into the game. And then, of course, from, like, a fall in love with the game and be, make it something that I probably will never stop playing, 
at least long term, is you know probably like a counter spell or my favorite card, Sphinx's Revelation. Yeah, I, I seem to remember when we were in high school. I remember we would play in, in Mrs. Cox's class and during Logic, of course. And I, I feel like you had a red deck that had a bunch of Phyrexian stuff in it. And the card that jumps back to me from memory is Slash Panther. Do, do you remember that one? Yeah, I do recall Slash Panther. I don't remember that deck, but Slash Panther is an artifact creature, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it had like a Phyrexian mana thing too. I, mm-hmm. I seem to remember that that was like one of the defining cards of this deck. And I remember thinking like, wow, like, that's something a magic card can do. That's that that's that's a, an impactful card, I would say, a memorable one, but not one that made me fall in love with it. What made me fall in love with magic was actually, funny enough, a card I've never owned, and one that I mentioned a few weeks ago for our top hundred cards. Oh, well, hundred cards for hundred episodes. You know what it was? Archangel of Thune, the three white white three four flying lifelink mythic. It's it's never gone under like twenty five dollars, so I've just never needed to buy one. Uh, and it says whenever you gain life, you put a one one counter on each creature you control. And this card is just the full package for me. I remember seeing this. And like, this was back when I was in high school and like doing the Googling phase, we were like, what is the best magic card? And Black Lotus comes up and you're like, well, that can't be right. It just adds mana. What is the biggest creature? And then you keep going and then you find Emrakul and you're like, oh, okay. So there's, there's some action here. And then you think, okay, how do you beat an Emrakul? And then it kind of goes from there. I don't know how many iterations I went through before I stumbled upon Archangel Thune or even how I got there. But I remember a friend of mine would play a bunch of games online on Cockatrice. And we would play with uh, these wacky life gain decks and we would model functions to represent how much life we'd gain and how many counters would go on everything and whose board would get infinitely bigger. Uh, and Archangel of Thune was a key piece of that deck. And I remember thinking like, the art is awesome. Like this angel is just about to cleave something's head clean off. I mean, it, it's an amazing game piece too. Uh, just by herself, when she deals damage, she's lifelink. So she puts a one-one counter everything. But if you combine her with soul sisters or any type of repeatable life gain effect, it's amazing. And the, the flavor text is actually one of my all-time favorites. Even the wicked have nightmares. Like how sick is that? That's pretty deep. So this one, I remember, really just solidified me. Like, this is what a magic card can be. It can be an awesome piece in the game. It can be the linchpin of a deck. It can be, like, kind of the defining thing. And it can have cool flavor to go with it. It can be a cool-looking thing that feels good to hold and play and cast, uh, he said, having never actually <laughs> held an Archangel of Thune. Maybe someday. I'll, I'll go pick one of those up. Maybe as a two-year anniversary gift to myself. That's an interesting part of magic that I think we've lost, though. I know I have, at least. I mean, I remember mm. when I first was getting into the game um, in any serious context. Like, I had been playing for a little while, but I wasn't, like, into the game. But back then, you know, as a kid, like, you didn't have the money to just go buy all the best cards. So when I saw somebody sit down at a table and cast like at that, at that time, it was like Jace, the mind sculptor, basically any yeah. mythic. Uh, no, I wasn't even thinking of mind sculptor. I was thinking of a uh, architect of thought, but any, basically any mythic. If I saw somebody cast a mythic, I was like, Whoa, like you, <laughs> you, what are these yeah. cards? What have you done to, to like open up this world for me? Yeah. Yeah. Now mythics have lost their, like at this point <laughs> I'm desensitized to them. They're just another card printed at like an, like, a a stupid rarity because reasons but it's like now you see a mythic and you're like well actually you're supposed to take inspiring overseer exactly (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah limited has shifted my priorities in that way that's for sure i will say i get to relive some of that through my students and and just through people that i teach to the game um just when they they get to experience cracking the pack and honestly cracking packs to build sealed with my students was one of the most fun things (laughs) that i've that i've done in a while uh just because I, i got to see 
students like open their rares and be like, oh my God, Fisher, this one's shiny. Is this any good? And it's like, a, <laughs> it was, it was a, a foil uh, McKinney ox that the five mana four, four with landfall, that taps a thing. And I was like, oh, that's really cool, man. <laughs> Just hold on to it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like you don't want to burst their bubble, but like, you know, you just let them enjoy it. They'll they'll figure it out eventually. It's that that level up from like you were saying before where you you kind of make that shift from wait, big creatures aren't necessarily the best creatures and there's like yeah, a difference yeah. between like good and beefy. And I had some one student in particular was like, "Oh, well, I, I want to play this uh I opened cards that are I opened like a blue red rare and it looks really cool, it's a cool border. And I opened a black red rare. It looks really cool, it's a cool border. So I'm going to build blue red black." And this is Zendikar Rising. So, and I'm like, you really don't want to do that. <laughs> but uh, you know what? I, I Just go. You know, d- do your thing. Have fun. Uh, I, I'd advise against it. Do some test games before you play against us. See how your mana works. But uh, living vicariously th- through others, I guess, can help us re-experience some of that, uh, that, that wonder that maybe we've become desensitized to. But, you know, sometimes when they spoil a card and we, we still freak out about it a little bit, I think that just shows how good a game magic is and, and how it still carries that weight. I when, even when they spoil the mythic dragons from, from Baldur's Gate, uh, you get to roll a D20 and draw 20 cards. Like, come on, <laughs> like who, cool. whose eyes don't go wide and who doesn't draw Joth at that. All right. Our next question here is what's your favorite flavor text? Ben, you kind of alluded to this already. I don't know if that was exactly your answer, but you did mention Archangel of Thune had pretty solid flavor. Yeah. Archangel of Thune, even the wicked have nightmares is fantastic. I, I did always love Fable Hero. I mentioned this also a few episodes ago. Um, this guy slaying harpies and he goes, you poet, be sure to write this down. Just awesome. A, a bit of flavor text I wanted to shout out that I think doesn't get recognized enough is when there's continuations in flavor text. We saw one recently with um, this guy on hello or that's someone else. Yeah, Angelio. Yeah, it was. A, a, yeah, I think it was like supposed to be a play on the, the name Angelo. But yeah, yeah the sleep at the fishes, uh, exotic pets, that that whole sort of. Yeah, yeah. Now, one instance that I thought of referring back was with uh, the Theriad, which was back from original Theros. And I was a little sad to see it wasn't continued in uh, the new Theros. Uh, it was this kind of uh, Iliad, Odyssey-esque uh, epic poem that's recorded on a bunch of cards. Uh, and it's just mostly on vanilla cards because they take up some significant chunks. My favorite of which being Great Heart, which, of course, I've got a foil in my Elk EDH deck. So I, I read this one all the time. Uh, but it's it's nice. And like someone put a lot of thought and effort into this and trying to recreate almost like what this lore would look like within an ancient Greek flavored magic world uh, to create instead of this, you know, myth, this myth around Elspeth. And like, what would it look like if you had this band of, of, of this company traveling with this hero of valor like Elspeth and they'd write stuff down? What would that look like from their perspectives? Uh, and you get a lot of really cool moments, uh, especially on, on a card like Great Heart. I recommend you look it up and check it out. Yeah. And I, I want to shout out here to the we, we've seen like variations of this sort of thing, right, where they have like some r- really relatively unimportant story that's explained through the cards, but adds just such a level of depth to the card sort of creation and, and kind of bringing us into a world where these things exist and and really fleshing that out. One of the biggest ones that stuck with me and I know is is has been popular with most magic players. I know, Ben, it, it's from a plane that you care about a lot. And that is the clue tokens from the shadows of an Innistrad block yeah. sort of thing where they, they kind of led all of the players on to figuring out for themselves that Emrakul was back. And that was just an exceptionally done. I thought they did a phenomenal job with the way they kind of yeah. didn't really spoil that, but like just leaked little 
things, not, not real leaks, like through the cards that were released kind of leaked little tidbits until we got to Eldritch moon and kind of figured out for sure. Like, Oh yeah. Emmy's back. There that is, said, good. Oh. There is one more bit of flavor text that I, I want to shout out. And then sadly on a card that you don't really get to cast very often. It's from unhinged. Uh, and that's carnivorous death parrot. And this is one that I, I often say during games and every once in a while, my opponent will like get the reference and have a good laugh. The flavor text on this card, carnivorous death parrot, it's one of the blue for a two, two flyer. And that's, you know, that's pretty good, right? Except at the beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice carnivorous death parrot, unless you say it's flavor text. So, you know, it's got to be something good. And the flavor text is save a kill spell to deal with this guy. <laughs> that's great. So at each of your upkeeps, you got to remind your opponent, be like, hey, don't forget to save a kill spell to deal with this guy. <laughs> Just a very fun and clever use. And sometimes I'll, I'll jokingly remind my opponent if I've got like a flyer and it's beating them down, I'll be like, hey, save a kill spell to deal with this guy. How often do people realize what you're referencing? It's not often, but every once in a while they get it. That's fine. Yeah. So the first, I mean, there are so many good flavor texts and we covered a lot of them that we enjoy in episode 100. But the first one that jumped to mind when I, when I read this question was whirlwind denial. Um, and the flavor text is just no, no, and no. <laughs> Counter everything, say no each time. Yeah, that pretty much sums my gameplay up. So Next up, what place have you always wanted to go but haven't been able to? Whew, that's a long list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, start listing. I think top of the list right now is Italy. I would really love to. I, I've very heavily been contemplating doing like an eight-month stint where I'll move there and just start at the top of the country and spend a couple weeks in different cities and just work my way all the way down. Eat your way through. Pretty much. Um, So Italy's up there. I'd love to see England. I'd love to see New Zealand. I'd love to go back to Costa Rica. I'd love to see Puerto Rico. I'd love to see Spain and Portugal and Brazil. I'd love to see the Netherlands. Just like Prague, all of them, (laughs) all the places. (laughs) There are a lot of places in the U.S. that I'd like to see too, like the Grand Canyon and Mm. most of the national park system I'd really love to see. Yeah, uh, I have been to the Grand Canyon. And I can confirm it is a just big hole. <laughs> it's about what you'd expect. Uh, I, I've been to a bunch of the, the national parks, but I've actually never really left the Americas. Uh, in fact, I never really left the, the North America. So uh, I'd love to go to Europe someday. I've never been over to overseas. That's that's up to the top of my list, I'd say. Um, some Anywhere other places, in particular? Ah, Europe's a big place. Yeah. Um, Italy, Germany, I'd say, cause I, I have some family heritage there and, um, I don't know, I guess, I guess England would be cool. I hear it's gloomy there. So I hear our, maybe our English listeners can confirm or deny. I hear it rains a lot. And honestly, I don't mind that. I think it's kind of fun. Might be a nice change. So, uh, definitely want to check that out. And, and also I find the concept of beans for breakfast fascinating. I got to give that a shot. I realize I could do that here just as easily, but it's tradition. Uh, New Zealand is, is also pretty high on my list. And my brother has been to the Galapagos a few, a few times. And uh, he, he's a bit of a nature photographer and he's a big fan of it there. He's always said that I'd love it. So that, that's up on my list too. All right. Next question. If you drink, which both of us do occasionally, what's your favorite alcoholic beverage? Whew, man. So if I want to go to a bar and like, if I want like a litmus test as to how good drinks at this bar are going to be, I just get a whiskey sour. Uh, and, and from that, I can kind of be like, all right, how are they mixing things here? Are they giving me good stuff off the bat or no? Like, is this some junk house stuff? Um, how's their mix? You know, as for an all time favorite drink, I don't know. I've, I've, I've become a bit of a mixologist with friends. Um, and I usually find like if I'm having a gathering, the task ends up falling to me most of the time to be the one that makes the drink for the gathering. So 
uh, a few of my all timers, I, I will say uh, creamsicle. I love a good creamsicle, just some uh, any, any kind of orange soda, anything crush is good. And vanilla vodka, it's good stuff, maybe some whipped cream on top. I'm a big fan of warm drinks. I, I make a dang good mold cider, just pretty top of the line mold cider. That's I, I spent hours over the winter perfecting my mold cider recipe that I am very proud of. Uh, and oh man, but, but my, my all time favorite, you take a crack at this. I'm drinking a hot toddy right now. So, yeah, uh, both of us are, are indulging ourselves at the moment. We don't normally drink when we record the show, but it's, we're celebrating. So wait, we don't. Right. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. So for me, if I had to just say like generically my favorite drink, like if I could never drink anything again, what would, what would it be? Would probably just be like a Woodford reserve neat. Like I'm a big, I'm a big bourbon guy and typically like to taste the the drink for what it is. That said, I do have a few mixed drinks that I enjoy. I'm a big old fashioned guy, prefer an old fashioned to a Manhattan, almost never order a Manhattan, but I will get old fashions from time to time. Um, In terms of beer, I like Sam Adams, pretty much whatever is seasonal. I feel like I've never been disappointed with the Sam Adams. I'm drinking a John Collins right now, which is a bourbon-based drink, but it's it's a little summery. Whiskey sours, whiskey smashes are pretty phenomenal as well. So kudos to you for using that as a litmus test. And we, we were talking about it a little bit before the show, but one of my favorite non-whiskey mixed drinks is is the, the Surfer on Acid, which is Jaeger, co- uh, coconut rum, and pineapple juice. And it's delicious. Yeah, I was telling Zach, I got to try this. Like, I don't know how I haven't had this, <laughs> but uh, definitely something I'm going to get next time I go out. Yeah. Um, old fashions are up there for me. I uh, I found a place once that made a smoked old fashioned where they lit it on yeah. fire too. It's good stuff. Um, That's interesting. I think honestly, my one of my all time favorite individual drinks was a uh, like a maple liqueur that, that I got from like a, a place in Vermont. Where they, they did all of the stuff themselves. They had a whole big distillery and refinery and everything. And, you know, it's Vermont. Like, you're going to get maple stuff while you're there. And it, it it's like drinking d- more delicious maple syrup, you know. There is there is also a drink, if you're under 18, cover your ears, I guess. Um, <laughs> they, they should have already. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Wait, 21, what are you talking about? You, well, you I was just talking about content content wise, not necessarily the alcohol. Oh, I know where this is going. Yeah. But there's a, there's a drink that I was introduced to by my brother called the buttery nipple, which is (laughs) butterscotch schnapps and Bailey's or some sort of cream liqueur. And that is an exceptional like dessert shot. I would never recommend drinking like a drink of that, like, you know, a drink's worth, but as, as a shot, it's very, very good. I'd actually love to make one of those with screwball, Hmm. like add a little bit of peanut butter flavoring in there. I think that would be really good. Yeah. I'm a big fan of fruity wines. I'll say um, a, a nice Moscato or uh, honestly, and any kind of like, if I just go to a local place and, and I find that they have some sort of like nice fruity wine there, there's almost guarantee that I'm going to love it. Um, I, I think I, I'm probably like 50, 50 between like whiskey ish, like whiskey and bourbon ish drinks and wine ish drinks. I tend to veer away from tequila and uh, vodka. You know? Yeah, those don't really I've do been, it. For been me. there, done that. You know. Yeah, I've never been a fan of vodka and tequila. Is like I'm actively like I'll drink vodka if it's you know if that's all that's available and like I'm in the mood to drink. But like yeah. tequila, I've never liked. I will say my my opinion on this changes based on the season. Like we're going into the summer months, so a John Collins or a whiskey sour slash smash are my usual go tos at this time of year. Like those are just phenomenal summer drinks. In the winter, I go to mulled wine. That's my mm. my typical uh, preferred yeah. drink. Anyway, listeners out there, if you got any recs for us, let us know. You know what we're into now, so 
hit us up. This is a good one. If you're having any trouble falling asleep, what do you do? You have a routine? This is, this is a great question. I so there was a, a an alternate universe that nearly was our actual universe where I became a psychology major instead of going into computer science. Hmm. And my focus, I was my thought was I would go into psychology. You kind of need a master's to get anywhere career wise in in that field. But I was planning prior to like learning to program, I was planning to get a PhD and focus on dreams and sleep mm. and all the different stuff because we, we, as humans, we have no idea why we dream or like <laughs> yeah. any of what goes yeah, on with dreams, awesome. even still. So it's a very wide open field. There's a lot to learn there, but I used to, for the longest time, like watch videos to fall asleep to. And I'm weird because I'm like an ex- extremely light sleeper. But if I put something that's like monotonous or around the same cadence without much inflection in the voice. Um, it helps me fall asleep. That said, I found that like once I stopped doing that, I actually sleep a lot better. So mm. just not watching videos was, was a good way to <laughs> fall asleep. Reading helps a lot. And I've read that um, when you're sleeping or when you're laying in bed, if your eyes are looking up, so like relative to your brow line, if you're looking up versus looking down, you're more likely to fall asleep. Like it helps you sleep if your eyes are looking up toward your eyebrows. Huh. Um, so I like to read with like a, my Kindle up like above my forehead basically. So I have to look up and it helps me fall asleep pretty quickly. Huh. I never knew that. You should check out the, there's a good Vsauce video about this uh, where he went and had his brain imaged and talked to some researchers that are like actively studying uh, dream imaging where they're, they're like teaching a network to identify, you know, based on what people think about in real life, based on like what their brains and how they activate what they look like in different types of scans, how brains and neurons fire while like actively thinking. They're using that to attempt to study brains while they're asleep and attempt to reconstruct what they're dreaming about. And they've crafted some very, very rudimentary images of what people are dreaming out to which those people wake up and say, yeah, like that's that's about it. Uh, I was dreaming of this and then it matches the data. So a, a, we, we've, we've broken into the science, uh, which is just nuts to think about. Yeah, it's 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 a really wild field. I actually do have a uh, a consistent playlist that, that I have for this. Uh, it's my uh, my sleep playlist, and I, I would add songs to it. I, I started doing this right when the pandemic began, um, and I've gone on and off. Sometimes I use it, sometimes I don't. There was probably a good year where I used it, and then since I, I've kind of faltered. It's funny. I, at the end of the year, Spotify releases the year wrapped, right, where it shows you the the top songs that you listen to. So I was listening to like these songs every night. And it was funny because a lot of the songs were like the slow ones by some of my, my favorite bands, like a slow song by at the time I was listening to a lot of the 1975 and a lot of Bon Iver, Bon Iver, like all, all of the stuff. But so my, my end of the year, my artist list was accurate because it showed like the artists I was listening to most. But the individual song top list was just so bizarre and sad because it was all these slow, depressing songs that I was just using to put myself to sleep. And it's to the point where if I hear those songs now, I kind of Pavlov myself into like getting tired. So if I have one of those come on while I'm in the car, I'll skip it because I'm like, nope, I don't want to fall asleep. That's hilarious. Yeah, I will say um, not something I do on a regular basis, but like if I had to pick a favorite sound, period, like rainforest, you know, like the, the slight dribble of like a light rain and and like birds Mm. and stuff would would definitely help me sleep a lot that's one of the most soothing sounds i can think of so here's a good one what's the best evergreen keyword ability in limited after flying yeah i think flying takes a cake right it's clearly the best that's a really tough question i think i would say trample i i'm trying to think like i mean why is flying the best it's probably because of evasion and tramples like the closest you can get to evasion in terms of evergreen keywords. 
without flying? I'm going to go, I think, three levels deep here and say lifelink. Uh, and I think brand new limited players overvalue life gain to the point where they might put bad cards in their deck that, that gain them life. Uh, I think the second level is when you say, no, actually, your life total is a resource and you should spend it. And I think maybe the third level from that is when you kind of go back around and say, actually, life total can be an important resource in some formats. And if you have a 5-5 five, five lifelinker in limited, you just feel great, right? Like that is a must kill threat. If you have a 5-5 five, five Trampler, I don't know. I'm taking a 5-5 five, five Lifelink over a 5-5 five, five Trample in most formats. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I prefer Lifelink on like... So you're right. There is kind of those those three levels. I, th- I agree with you there. And I think that third level is, is best described as like recognizing that life gain as an incidental upside is something that should be prioritized over like random cards that just are like gain five life yeah. but having lifelink stapled to a creature that can perform in the battlefield is is going to be hugely beneficial we've seen that over the last handful of sets actually like the last few formats have been very very oriented around like i'm happy to have a two two lifelink a three three lifelink yeah or a few in my deck because you're going to win by like two or three life mm. so those extra life points matter a lot i don't know that i care as much to have on a, have lifelink on a five five like i think once you get I just want to have it on more creatures, not necessarily big ones, I think in general. But yeah, I don't know. That's a tough question. I, I, I still think I'd go trample. Now, I guess we could say Hexproof probably would have been best, but they've kind of phased out Hexproof in favor of Ward. Ward has just been so much of a better design than Hexproof. And I agree. It's not as good, obviously, <laughs> but um, but at least it's more interaction, solid. which is the which is what makes it better as like a a play effect mm. you know hex proof just leaving no interaction makes it just not fun yeah all right our next question here is do you for, do you prefer to play decks that value card advantage or tempo more yes <laughs> both <laughs> yeah. this could be I, a whole episode i actually prefer tempo i think i think for folks who don't necessarily know like if you have not spent time learning how tempo decks work because and we talked about this when we interviewed marshall but there are because tempo is his favorite type of deck there are different types of tempo and it's a it's a it's a type of deck that takes a lot of i'll say education to get right like you need reps with it you need to play with it to understand like what actually matters and based on the type of tempo you're playing whether it's like removal based or bounce based or just aggression based or something you have different play patterns and that's why i like tempo just because it's more fun cards that just generate card advantage out the wazoo are like great because i love drowning my opponents in value but yeah there's less nuance and there's a little bit less interaction and just like thought going into that. So I prefer tempo. How about you? Yeah, I probably err on the set of tempo here. I think when I first started playing, I was more of a mid-range player. I think I've since become a little more aggressive since then. For sure. Tempo is a really nebulous topic. Um, And I might summarize it best by saying it's when you are okay with wasting some of your resources because you are wasting proportionately more of your opponent's. So I think of Unsummon is a, a very key tempo card. It really only sees play in like, you know, tempo decks or decks that are generating so much card advantage that they don't care about losing out on, on functionally a card for nothing. Um, where you are trading one mana and a card for maybe five of your opponent's mana. So and you're saying, yeah, yeah, and a term. Uh, and saying like, all right, sure, that the creature's going to come back down now. But now my three threes can get in and I'm going to kill you while you still have four cards in hand. So it didn't matter that I went down on cards because you didn't you didn't get to cast all of yours anyway. Uh, so I guess aggro kind of slides into that where you're, you're playing these cheap removal things and these these aggressive uh, creatures that tend to um, tend to fare pretty well on a board. I, I, I think I, I probably 
shifted maybe like three or four years ago away from the more siege rhino-y plan and into the more, uh, I don't know, aggressive plan. I still play everything in limited, of course, but I find that in constructed formats, I tend to now favor the more monocolor aggressive decks, which I guess are a little bit outside of this dichotomy, but you know, they, they still don't mind uh, having less card advantage. Yeah, they can be tempo oriented. I think tempo decks tend to want card advantage as well. But the you you kind of hit the nail on the head there, where you're talking about the way a tempo oriented player needs to view the game. Whereas yeah. when we talk about card advantage, it's typically like I'm getting a two for one, meaning I'm spending one card and re- dealing with two of yours, mm-hmm. and that puts me ahead on resources because I've spent less cards than you have in this interaction. Whereas a tempo player is looking more in terms of what am I getting done right now. And how far am I setting you back? Right. Yeah. And and a lot of times that comes down to literal mana values. Like I'm spending one mana and a card on it in the case of an unsummon to bounce your five drop that is going to give me an opening to get in five extra damage. And so the amount of work that I'm getting done, plus putting you back a turn and having to recast that five drop matters more to me than the fact that I wasted a card and you didn't really lose a card. We actually see this right now in Streets of New Capenna, where Bant is very much a tempo deck. I think something like Spara's Adjudicators, the, the family fixer that comes down, makes a thing not able to attack or block for a turn. That is a bit of a tempo card. It's a five out of five, five. Or- Four, four, five out of four, four, right? Not necessarily the body you want to be putting all this mana into and you have to pay three different colors to cast it too. So it's like, you know, a bit of a, a hoop to jump through. But then you take out one of your opponent's blockers for a turn and yeah, it's going to come back. But if you kill them on the turn you cast it, then it's not coming back because your opponent died. Whereas the, the Maestro's deck, I would define as a bit more card advantage oriented, something like Corpse Appraiser has one of the highest win percentages uh, among Maestro's cards. And it's just a 3-3 that draws you a card. <laughs> it gives you some filtering too, yeah. But it, it is just a, a card that draws you a card. And you know, both these are valid game plans. I feel much more comfortable playing the, the Bant deck than, than playing uh, the Grixis one. Interesting. I think I would have expected otherwise. But I, yeah, I think the, the big thing there is, right, we're talking about like, you know, when you look at every single deck, all of the cards you put into a deck are puzzle pieces and sort of the way that the vector of that deck, like the direction of the vector of that deck is sort of the final puzzle once all those pieces work together properly. Mm. And I would say that the tempo decks typically have more of a, a process involved to solving that puzzle than a generally oriented card advantage based deck, which is why I like tempo so much. It makes every game unique and you're also not dealing with your opponent's stuff on a permanent basis. Like you have to kind of think it's very chess like in that way. Like you have to think multiple turns ahead because you know that threat is coming back. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to slow that down temporarily, but in the meantime, I'm doing all this other stuff to make, make up for it. Tempo rarely tempo, tempo rarely is Moving that on. Tempo comes from <laughs> anywho. Um, Who's the person who's had the greatest influence on your life outside of your family? That is a deep question. Oh, boy. I actually can kick off with an easy answer to this. My graduate professor. Uh, her name is Dr. Ekina. She's written countless papers. You can look her up. She is, uh, and no offense to all the teachers listening, she's the best teacher on earth. She is hands down the best teacher. She's a physics and astrophysics expert, prodigy even, uh, to the point where she can talk circles around anyone and and with such confidence. One of the most stern people I know, she uh, she grew up in Russia where she she taught for a while too and then came here. So she, she's a, 
She's strict. She's no nonsense most of the time and isn't afraid to start an argument, but is also inspiring. She reminds me of Azula uh, in a way <laughs> from from Avatar. That could very well be an insult. <laughs> well, okay, in a, in a good way, in that she's both inspiring, a little terrifying, but uh, undeniably a good person to have on your side. And the, well, this graduate professor of mine, w- when she teaches... I remember sitting in like on, on some of my first meetings and lessons with her. When you're in a class and she's teaching, I, I almost hesitate to call it teaching. It's more like she's doing brain surgery on everyone in class simultaneously. It's more like she's going in, she's focusing on everyone in the class, going into their mind, picking through it, tossing out some of the scraps, rearranging it, and then you know shutting the lid at the end. And it, it feels like you had your brain rewired after a class with her, which is incredible. I've never experienced anything like it. And I think she's the best educator on the planet. You can go read her research. It's, it's unbelievable. Those teachers out there, um, I recommend you look into the, uh, the, the ISLE methodology, I-S-L-E, particularly those teaching science or, or physics. Um, it, it is the best. And ever since I met her, well, when I was in college, I was thinking about like, well, what am I going to do next? I meet this woman and she goes, all right, you're mine now. Like you're going to become an amazing astronomy teacher and you're going to like it. And I was like, all right, I guess this is happening. And she has been so formative in, in my education and helping me understand more about my, my uh, educational career and uh, teaching practices, but also about myself. She's the kind of teacher that'll be like, hey, you had a bad day today. Like, what's up? Let's talk. You know, um, what's going on? Show me. Your... <laughs> At one point, she had me sit down with her and show me, uh, show her my, my weekly schedule and be like, all right, you're too busy. You got to cut back on some things. I got to help you with this. Like she was so invested and involved with every one of her students. Definitely a, a highly influential person on my life. Wow, that's incredible. I don't think yeah. I had an experience like that with any any professors in college. You know it when it happens. <laughs> I'll say that. Yeah, I mean, I, I did have, uh, I've had some professors who teach that way. Like, not some, I had one professor that taught in a similar way where you just like leave class and you're like, what what just happened? Like, yeah, yeah. how do I you're know like, all I'm this smarter stuff now? now. <laughs> yeah, we had a, I had a professor who, to, to kind of just highlight the type of person this guy was, he walked into class one day and he was wearing a shirt that had like fish all over it, <laughs> you know? And somebody goes, some one of the students goes, "Hey, prof, I like your shirt. Like, I really like the fish on your uh, on your shirt." And he goes, "Fish." I'm like, yeah, you know the, the fish that are on your shirt. He goes, "These aren't fish. These are pictorial representations of fish." <laughs> so he's he's that kind of guy. That's pretty good. But he taught um, he taught a few of my like logic oriented classes, hmm. and we had a, we had a particular session where he was teaching recursion, which uh, you know if you're if you're listening and you don't know what recursion is, it's sort of the idea that like the function that you're working on kind of enables itself. It's like a wheel that doesn't stop spinning or hopefully it stops. But to teach recursion, he walked, he walked into class. Like he was later than all the students were. He walked into class, went up on the board, wrote out a function. And I, when I say function, I'm talking about like a programmatic function. So he yeah. wrote some like pseudo syntax on the board, said some things. I don't remember exactly what the words he said were. Then like backed himself up out of the classroom walked back in and did the exact same thing over again. And he did it like three times and we're all just like, okay, we're learning recursion today. So I'm not sure, you know, this is a tough question for me. Nobody jumped to mind outside of my parents. So like we're, you know, the question stipulated outside of your family and nobody like immediately jumped to mind. I did have one particular mentor when I was in college who 
definitely was a heavy influence on my life. He just had a way of like sort of connecting and, and pulling out the like root causes of problems and be just like throwing them at you and be like, well, here's the thing that you actually need to fix, even though this is what you think you need to fix. And he was great at directing my attention to the right uh, problems or the right solutions. But yeah, I, I guess I would say him. His name is Maz. He's a pretty awesome guy. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. All right, so our next question here comes from Wolverine. And the question is, I guess directed to, at me, but I'll ask <laughs> we'll, we'll, Ben, you can answer this too. How many times have you watched The Batman and is it getting closer or further from being better than The Dark Knight? So <laughs> I mean, I guess I can answer, but go for it. I, um, I, I, I hesitate and cringe to call myself a, a, a film bro, but I, I do love watching a good film. <laughs> and I enjoyed both The Dark Knight and The Batman a lot. I've only seen The Batman once. I saw it with Zach. And The Dark Knight I've probably seen three or four times. Fantastic movie. I, I feel like I enjoy The Dark Knight more um, based on some performances. The Batman is just so long, man. It's just so long. And uh, you do have to take that into account. There's some... Um, at the same time, like it earns a lot of that length. It could be like 15, 20 minutes shorter, you know, but uh, there's some there's some cuttable things in there. I had some problems with the Batman that I that I don't think I have with the Dark Knight. And uh, honestly, both have really good villain performances. I, I, I rank them pretty close in, in my book over overall, but I think I prefer the Dark Knight. All right, uh, I'll shut up. Get going. Yeah, so if you're a newer listener, I don't remember how, how frequently I've talked about this, but Wolverine's asking about this because I have seen The Dark Knight an absurd amount of times, uh, 139 to be exact. And so I have seen The Batman three times, I believe, at this point. And it's really difficult to compare the two. They are such drastically different films. Like, yes, they both have Batman in them, but The Dark Knight is really a Joker movie, and the Batman is really a noir-style detective film. It's you could you could replace the characters with just about anybody, and it would still just be the same film. Like it has very little like Batman, um, I guess, orientation. I I don't I don't really know what the right word is there, but you really could just replace all the characters with completely different people, and it would still be the same film, and it would still be great. That said, I agree with Ben that the film was extremely extremely long. I think it probably could have been a half hour or even 45 minutes shorter than it was. That said, it did earn a lot of that length, as Ben said, and I think it also needed some of it. Like, there's an argument to be made that it, it actually needed that length. I, I think it could have been shorter, but I... Is it getting... It's getting closer to being better than The Dark Knight. I, I have a hard time comparing the two, though, because they're just such drastically different films. I think ignoring the latter hour or so of uh, The Batman, which sounds like a lot of time, but it's a three and a half hour movie. I think I actually enjoyed the Batman better overall, but that might be because mm. I've seen the Dark Knight so many times now I'm kind of like over it. I think the performances overall were better. As I said, the Dark Knight is more of a Joker film and I think Heath Ledger takes the cake with that performance, but I actually think Christian Bale was a worse Batman or a worse Bruce mm. Wayne. Well, we didn't really see too much of Bruce Wayne in the Batman. Um, it's what a very, we did see it's, was a depressed loner, which I, I thought was great. Robert Pattinson killed it in that regard. I like yeah. this take on Batman. Well, and they, they did a great job. Sorry, spoilers, by the way. Um, <laughs> we, we've yeah. been very, we've been pretty spoiler free so far, but you know, I'll get into a little bit of stuff here. That's maybe spoilery. We, they did give us like, and I loved the way that that this was done. Matt Reeves did this phenomenally, in my opinion. They made it very apparent that we're in year two of Batman. So he's still like mm. trying to figure out what it even means to be Batman. And that's a theme throughout the whole film that actually gets yeah. realized at the end of the movie. So it's not the same Batman either. Like 
the Dark Knight's Batman is he's he's a few years into it. He's kind of got his sort of rhythm under his belt. Like he he understands what he's doing and who he is. And um, there's a little bit of like what can I handle and how much is too much in the Dark Knight. But it's a more raw Batman we see in the Batman. I think I liked Matt Reeves's filming style a little bit better. And Chris Nolan's my favorite director, but Matt Reeves' directorial style was. Um, refreshing. So I like that a lot. So it's getting closer to answer the question. It's getting closer to the Dark Knight. I still think I'd put the Dark Knight above it, but uh, the Batman was unique and it's it's the most refreshing take on a superhero movie in well, pretty much ever. Next up, a question from Sean Anigans. Which colors were you originally drawn to when starting to play Magic and how has that changed? Well, I think you have a more interesting story here than I do. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I think I started off as a very green, white, black player. And I, I felt pretty happy as long as I wound up in any combination of that. Specifically, uh, green, white, and green, black were the two color pairs that I, I gravitated towards most. A lot of the early decks that I would build, particularly in limited, I would uh, maybe force those a little more than I should have. A lot more than I should have, I would force those decks. Uh, but those were, you know, format dependent too. And I, I felt very comfortable playing those decks. Now, I don't know if this was a result of green, black, just getting nothing in in the last like 10 sets the last time i was genuinely excited to be playing green black was like kaladesh right like has anything come a while ago yeah not really yeah not not really um but for whatever reason i've since felt a bit more gravity towards uh white and red um whether through monocolor aggro or i i find myself like pretty happy playing like a white red beatdown deck and i think that follows my tendency towards more aggressive strategies i play blue now more than i did back then i'm not going to go at it and say it's yeah zach's cheering on, on the other end but i'm not going to say it's like uh, uh in my favorites i wouldn't even say it's in my top five favorite colors but uh you know it's <laughs> I'll, I'll certainly play it when i get the chance uh, colorless doesn't count you only have five colors to choose from oh you're, you're forgetting about purple uh, it, uh they're releasing it in a secret layer you have to buy it oh okay right dlc <laughs> Have, have you changed much or have you just been blue white through and through? Yeah. I mean, I started, I actually kind of started in the red sort of thing. You, you alluded to that one deck um, that I played in high school. That was like red, white aggro, I guess. Um, but I've always had like sort of two allegiances, I guess. And that was like burn aggro and like super heavy control. They were like the exact opposite ends of the spectrum. I never liked mid range when I played the aggro stuff. I liked mono red and I liked occasionally red, white. And then when I played the control stuff, I liked mono blue or blue white. And I've actually noticed a lot recently that I've moved away from red a little bit in terms of like identifying with the colors. I've been a lot more interested in what the, you know, like blue, black, blue, white, black, even sometimes throwing green in there colors have done flavorfully within magic and also just the way that the games play. Especially with the ability to like, when I, when I discovered tempo, then I was like, oh, okay, what do I need red for? You know, <laughs> like that gives me the yeah. aggro stuff. Like, like blue white spirits is what I play in modern. And it's just like, it gives me all that I need from the aggro spectrum while still giving me the control stuff that I want. And then I was like, oh, that's what tempo is. Okay. I, I found my home. There aren't really any good tempo decks that I've ever found with black, but I love mill. And so, you know, black is very handy in that area as well. And all the control aspects. I also really like Ponza though, and that's red green. So I don't know. I'm kind of all over, I guess. But I, my my main identity in terms of the colors is probably in like the Jeskai. No, uh, not even Jeskai anymore. That's kind of the thing. I've moved away from the Jeskai, but uh, more in like the Sultai space, I would say. All right. Our next question here is from Gus WF in the Discord. And this is a, this is a solid question. I'm a big fan of this one. What superpower would you want? But... 
we've got some stipulations. So three flavors. You it, you choose a superpower on this earth as we currently live in it, a world where everyone has a power and it's not like a special thing to have superpowers. And then your your default like Marvel slash DC where like, okay, heroes exist, but not everybody is one. Wow. So if you're the only person on earth with a power, let's start with that. Like just you has this power. What would you go for? Yeah. So my default answer when anybody asks me like, what superpower do you want? It's teleportation. Just hands down. Like Mm. life gets so much easier if you can teleport. Transportation is like you save so much time, which is kind of what I am looking for. I also like to think that like on this earth, if we were, if anybody was to get superpowers, they'd be like really mundane just because like nobody has them. I still think on this earth, like without anybody else having powers, I think teleportation would be the one. Mm. Yeah. If I wanted to just go all out and be like the superhero of planet earth. I mean, at that point you're going to have a lot of calls coming your way. A lot well, that's of the thing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anybody to know I have the super, like I don't want to be a hero like that. Mm. I just want to be able to like be a better person to the people in my life. And I think being able to be more punctual and actually be productive in a way that like most people can't be would be the best way to do that. Yeah, it's true. Maybe I would, maybe I'd take like a humanitarian route on this one. If I'm like the only person, maybe I'd go for like, uh, ability to transmute things like like turn um turn like a brick into a slice of pizza or something you know that that could solve a bunch of world crises right off the bat right yeah it probably creates a bunch too but that's like getting into <laughs> uh, its own set of problems it, it violates a few physical principles of space but no i just mean like like when you, if you solve world hunger in one fell swoop then you have a population problem and it's like how do we deal with that and you know so you, you like close one can of worms open another but yeah, well, then I could just transmute the, you know, quantum fluctuations in empty space into the houses or something. I don't know. I, I, you got me there. Let's go to the next one. Let's go to the next one. The next one is uh, in a universe where everyone has a power. So we're talking about like uh, My Hero Academia. Yeah, I still think teleportation is just the best power to have, like bar, pretty much bar none. I think in a world where it's not special and like anybody can have a power, I have to put some thought into that. I always default to a teleportation. It just seems like the most logical decision. All right. Well, if I'm in a universe where everyone is powered in some way, I want to be able to make sure I have a leg up on everyone. And there's only really, really one way to go over the top of everybody. And that's time. You got to have something that messes with time, because if you can mess with time, then you can mess with everyone, regardless of you know what they're doing, so long as they're not messing with time. So I would say something along the lines of the world from uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, something that could give you just control over time where you could pause it for a little bit, go do stuff, unpause it. You could also, I guess, say you want to be like the flash and just, you know, be able to move near the speed of light. But then you start winding up with, well, okay, here's the problem. If you, if you say you're going to be traveling at near the speed of light, you start running into some major physics problems and you start having to worry about aging differently than the people around you. I, I think well, that's why the flash that. is so like well thought through. I mean, obviously there are holes uh, there, are of course, holes in the Flash's power set, but yeah. like they kind of work in with the whole speed force thing, relatively understandable reasons as to why like he doesn't have to deal with a lot of those problems. Uh, whereas like on Marvel's side with like Quicksilver, it's not the same. Like they just kind of don't give real explanations for any of that kind of stuff. I'll be honest, I don't know much about the Flash lore-wise, and the notion of something called speed force sounds like a nightmare for high school physics students because, you know, what units do you even use for that, right? <laughs> like, n- newton meter per seconds? Like, I think what, they what's make, going on I here? think they make new ones. It's like 
we I don't remember what they what they call it, but they do talk about them. Oh God, I don't know if I could. I, all right, I would probably either love it or hate it, and I, I almost don't want to find out. In that, in any case, I think I'll just walk back and say, you know, the ability to pause and restart time is is probably best here. Yeah, that's that's true. I guess if you don't have to worry about anytime I hear about like time dilation stuff, I'm like worried about all the possible implications of going back in time or going forward in time and like messing with the timelines, which is its own set of problems as well. But I guess functionally speaking, if you can stop time, teleportation is like you can teleport. You can teleport. Functionally speaking. The Flash is a great one, but I, I didn't know if I would count that as one power because he... Like he can go back in time. He can go forward in time. He can oh, do all sorts of that. Yeah. He runs so fast. He can go back in time and forward in time. Physics um, has some problems with the back in time part, but the forward in time, that's speed actually force fun. doesn't care. <laughs> uh, actually, okay. it cares a lot. It's like a <laughs> sentient force. It's really weird. Sentient forces. All right. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, so, wait, we still have the default sort of. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So if you're in like a, like a Marvel or DC type universe where some people have powers, so it's special, but you know, like you got competition. Yeah. I, I think my answer is the same across all three. I just want to teleport, <laughs> but I'm thinking when I say teleport, I'm thinking like jumper style teleport. If you haven't seen the movie jumper, go mm. watch it. Cause it's a phenomenal film, but well, phenomenally fun. It's not actually like the most amazing movie, but he has to have like seen a place in order for him to teleport to it. So like mm. he, in, in one scene, he has like a wall of postcards or like pictures that he's taken from places he's been. And it's just like, instant and you can teleport other things with you if you're good enough like there's a Mm. level of skill that needs to be developed to use it but that's kind of the type of teleportation i like i think i would either want something that was like so stupid and silly that it made me stand out and i was like like oh that guy like that superhero here he is something like like i got bit by a radioactive like hedgehog and and now i I have like hedgehog powers not not even like sound of the hedgehog just like i don't know i I have like bristles sometimes (laughs) just something (laughs) stupid like that um or i would want something that was unique in some way i I was thinking about my hero academia the the pretty good anime out there and i was thinking about there's a character named eraserhead uh who's has nothing to do with the movie eraserhead which uh, is excellent he doesn't look like a weird baby or anything um but his power is that he can um temporarily like stop someone else's powers uh and that seems like it'd be pretty useful in a world where you have both supers and non-supers trying to coexist you need someone to kind of you know be the the the, the stop gate to make sure that the supers aren't like abusing their powers I, i've been hearing a lot of good things about the boys recently uh, i might try to check that out at some point i saw like half the first season or so uh, which kind of just fell off. It's different. It's crude, very crude, but yeah. hilarious and also a refreshing take on superhero stuff. Um, but, I, but I like it. It's, I've heard a lot probably, of students. You'd probably it, like it. You'd probably like it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Did you get around to watching Invincible? No, but I've heard such great things about it. Oh man, there is a scene in Invincible that yeah, will it's like the first episode, isn't it? Drop. Yes, it is incredible. Uh, it's. It's fantastic. Uh, and th- the show doesn't stop there, but by no means um, it keeps that level and it keeps it going for a long time. Cause once you see that and you realize what the show can do to you, then you're always on edge. Like when's it going to happen again? And it, it drops it here and there. Um, I think that and the boys probably have some, some similar takes. Yeah, I would say so. Especially with like the first couple of episodes. Um, I, I do want to actually f- go through the whole show of the boys, but uh, mm. I only got through like a few episodes. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I actually, I often like to think about like a world. I, I was sort of about framing the question when he, when Gus mentioned in this earth, like I kind of 
like the idea of having mundane superpowers where it's like, it's something that genuinely could be considered a superpower, but it's not like super strength or super speed or teleportation or something like, mm. like maybe every time you approach a crosswalk, the lights change in your favor. Like, <laughs> like that that's a good, cool yeah. superpower, but it's super mundane. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think of uh, Avatar with, with Uncle Iroh, how sometimes he just uses firebending to warm up his food and his yeah. tea. <laughs> Next question is from Moon, who asks, is there a favorite one drop of all time? Yeah. The first one drop that came to mind when I read this question was Student of Warfare, which is mm. from, I think, Rise of the Eldrazi and is one of the level up cards. And I used to think this was like the best card ever printed. It's pretty solid, but... Um, isn't this, is this still in vintage cube? I think it was at some point. Oh yeah, it is. I, I play that thing all the time. It, turn one, turn one student warfare is dangerous in vintage cube. Yeah. I mean, it's a, so for, if you've never seen the card, it's a one drop that has level up for white. And so it's a one mana one, one, but then you can pay one at sorcery speed to make it a three, three with first strike. So it's a two mana, three, three, first strike. And then you have to put a lot of extra mana into it and it eventually becomes a four mana a uh, four, four double strike, but this is all starting from a one mana card, which you eventually have to total. You have to put eight mana into to get it to a four, four double strike, but it's, that's pretty good. Yeah. One that, that jumps to mind for you is vexing devil. Didn't, didn't your red deck used to have a bunch of vexing devils in it? Yes, it did. Vexing devil was a, a favorite of mine. There's so many good mono red one drops though. Like, I mean, come yeah. on lightning bolt. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Goblin guide. Goblin guide's a good one. Oh, Ragavan, the, the monkey himself, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't played like serious red uh, yeah. with Ragavans, but I would probably have to go with Raven Inspector. Uh, I love the old Thray BB on, on this one. Llanowar Elves is up there for me, too. The Mother of Runes and Giver Runes. I, I love those style effects. Same with Soul Sisters. Uh, so Soul's Attendant, Soul Warden, and there's a green one, too. Essence Warden, I think. Yeah, I like Soul Sister effects. Those are those are pretty good. Noble Hierarch, Birds of Paradise, like uh, one mana ramp comes to mind. I'm a big fan of those. And uh, yeah, honestly, anything that the, the ramps you or starts beating down early. Oh, one that I, w- I would shout out, Sarah Ascendant. That's maybe what I was thinking of. Yeah, earlier. that's a really good one. The uh, one mana, one, one lifelink. And if you have 30 or more life, it gets five, five and flying. Real fun card, especially in Commander. Yeah, just a casual one mana six six flyer. <laughs> they don't template cards like this anymore, and this is probably a big reason why. All right, next question is: What's a trade you've made that you regret to this day? And because I don't think either of us have done a ton of trading, I'll stipulate. I'll, I'll adjust this question slightly: trade and or sale of a card that that you're. Yeah, I, I do have one for this. I played in pre-release with a uh, my, my pre-release promo was actually the Scarab God. And it was awesome in limited, as you'd expect, possibly the best limited card of all time. Uh, I sold it for like 20 bucks <laughs> at the end uh, of the pre-release. And of course, for the next like seven months, it was like a $60 card. And honestly, it's still just a valuable card to own. Like Scarab God is just an insanely good card. It's a cube staple. It's a commander all-star. Like it can do it all. The Scarab God is, is just one of the best you know, limited cards ever printed. It's just an insanely good design. Definitely regret selling that thing off. I would love to still own a uh, a pre-release promo Scarab God, but that ship has sailed. I haven't done as much trading here and there. Um, I'm sure there's trades that I would regret if I think about them too hard, but I just have such a difficult time remembering that kind of thing. Yeah, I think most of the time it really depends on on your your perspective, I suppose. Where at the end of the day, like none of the cards that any either of us have ever been able to own have been so valuable that you really would feel terrible for having traded it or sold mm-hmm. it for something. Cause typically when you're doing trades, it's like you're still getting v- the same value 
for that time, like maybe the prices will change later on, but you're still getting the the same value back at that time. So um, it never really feels all that bad in, in the moment. I will say the only time like a trader sale comes to mind was that, um, and these were beneficial on my end. I, so they're not regrets, but um, I mentioned, I think a couple of episodes ago that I, I once opened two boxes of Magic Origins and I opened a Jace Vrin's Prodigy in both boxes. Mm. And that card at the time was like maybe 15 bucks, but it spiked to like 90 within like a handful of months. And I can't recall if I sold both of them, but I know I sold one of them. And uh, that was definitely valuable. And then when I first played Magic, I started playing at M10, which was just before um, original Zendikar came out. And... You know, I was a little, I was still like in middle school or something, so I, I was just opening cards and didn't really know what I was opening or what I was doing with them or what was valuable and what wasn't. In any case, I stopped playing for quite some time, and then I got back into it in high school. And when I got back into it, I realized I had an Arid Mesa from back when I was mm. playing as a kid, and that was like a ninety dollar card or sixty dollar card at that time too. So I was like, oh, cool, let's sell this because I don't need a nice. red white fetch. <laughs> I've always been pretty careful with trades. Uh, I keep a lot of the stuff that I think I might want someday. I guess that makes me a bit of a hoarder in that sense. I have a a hard time trading off cards with sentimental value, uh, even if they have more monetary value than sentimental value, and it'd be (laughs) beneficial for me to to move them. Uh, Like, for example, I I always hold on to the one Liliana that I opened in in Chaos Draft, uh, Lily of the Veil. And when I got rid of my Lilies, because I I took down, I took apart my, uh, my rock deck, I kept the one. (laughs) <laughs> and even though I'm not using it, I'm not playing it right now. It's just sitting in my binder. Um, I couldn't. You know, it's, it's just such an important card to me because I opened a Lily pack one, pick one in a chaos draft. What am I supposed to do? Get rid of it? <laughs> like that's fair. It's, it's, I mean, it's, that's it's a, a story. That's a type of value in and of itself, though. I mean, money's not everything. So I think yeah. that's 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 valuable in its own right. And I also think you know, in terms of getting rid of cards, like both of us know ourselves well enough, and we know what we like in Magic well enough to know like that's a card I'm probably going to put in a commander deck one day. Yeah. And it's not likely to have the price fluctuate too much. Like for instance, the Scarab God's a perfect example. They're never reprinting the Scarab God. They might functionally come close, but they're never printing literal Scarab God ever again. Outside of like a master set or something. Sure. Sure. But it's never coming back in a standard set. It's just like that ship has sailed. It's gone. So, and it's also probably too powerful these days to, to print again. I just looked up. It's still a $28 card. Like, yeah. So that, that's one that like you come across certain cards as you get more into magic and you understand the game better. You understand the way you like to build decks. You understand the way you like to play the game. You start to see a card and you're like, that's either going to spike one day because the unique, the, the effect is unique enough, or I'm going to put that in a deck. And so I'm just not going to sell it because I already have it. So why bother trying to buy it later? Next up question from Wolverine. If money were not an option, and you could take a year to learn something new, what would it be? So I'm not sure if the question is that like, it doesn't cost you anything to learn this or you're like taking, you don't, you don't have to work. And so you can spend all your time learning this thing. Yeah. I think it's just like you take a year off of life and it's paid for to like master something. What would you pick? Um, language. I don't know which Mm. necessarily, but it would be at least one language. Um, I don't know what's a reasonable amount of time to immerse yourself in a culture to learn their language, but like, it'd be kind of cool to take a year and like move to Spain, learn Spanish, then move to Portugal, learn Portuguese. And the romance languages are close enough that like you, it probably would take you less time. The more of them, you know, it probably take you less time to learn the next, but yeah, yeah, I would really love to be a polyglot, which is somebody who knows a million, Mm -hmm. like a ton of language. I have a, a friend who is, and I think he speaks like six or seven at this point. He just like picks them up for fun. Yeah, I want to do that so bad. They never make the time to do it. And then when I don't use yeah. them, I just forget the parts of them that I have learned. So yeah, I, I've tried learning other languages in the past, but my brain just isn't wired for it. 
I think I might, well, this has to be something new. If I could take a year off to do something, I would probably just surf around the world. Uh, but that's not new. Exactly. I've been doing that for quite a while. I guess cooking isn't uh, new to me either, but I'm definitely an amateur. So I, I would probably spend the whole year just, I guess it also involves going around the world and just like studying under uh, like traditional chefs who are like experts and know their craft and, and know how to do stuff right. Because those are the kind of people that, that you want to learn from most, right? The experts. That's why people, uh, you know, listen to us, of course, because we're, we're so we're just so such magic experts. No, that's that's why we told them up front. We're chaff like we are not the experts. <laughs> you you want to come have fun. Yeah, that's what we're here for. Uh, you want to spike. You know, that's what LR is for. But exactly. I would say we're experts in having fun. I would agree with that. Yeah. If I learned something totally new, I'm trying to think of I've, I've dipped my hand in a lot of like things here and there throughout the years but i guess uh i don't know juggling <laughs> never learned how to juggle before uh, that, that, that's not really it hmm. yeah I, I guess i might have to stick with cooking yeah just kind of maybe either take one type of cuisine and become a master or try to become a little bit better at everything cool yeah that's a good one all right our next question here is from sirkovitz this is a unique one all right so let's set the stage here you have to play each other so this is i guess targeted at me and ben mm-hmm. the format is sealed the winner lives, the loser dies. Which Yikes. set would you pick to maximize your chances of survival, taking into account both your knowledge of the format and lack thereof of your opponent? Oof. So we're, we've been pit against each other in Mortal Kombat. One will live, one will die. Now let's for a moment accept that that's the only possible outcome. That like we are we are literally fighting for our life. Uh, ignore everything about draws and slow. No, if, if we draw, like we both die. Yeah, yeah. Um, and let's say that. I don't know if this is how it would play out, but let's say we each actively try to win. I, I don't know if that's how it would go. I mean, uh, if we're both, if a draw means we both die, I think we both have to actively try to win. Yeah, I guess so. Like statistically, it's better for one of us to live than, than yeah, none of exactly. us, right? <laughs> okay, okay. So let's say we are, we are actively fighting against each other to live. What set are we picking to play sealed to maximize our chances of surviving? There is so much to dive here. into in this question. Go ahead. Uh, the first set to come to my mind would be Midnight Hunt for me. Uh, uh, Midnight or Crimson Vow. I, I guess Vow specifically, because Vow, I had a, a pretty stupid win rate, like a, a little of 70%, I think, by the time the format ended, or like 68-ish, something, something around there. Uh, I loved Vow a lot more than most people, despite it being not the best set of all time. Uh, and it's it was a bomb-oriented format remember there were a lot of stuff and i would have to hope to spike into just some bombs and hope that you didn't uh because at that point i am setting myself up for success because i played so much of the format because i was successful at it and because i went pretty deep into how to get like card advantage out of some of the 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 white cards in that set i felt pretty confident about that plus like werewolves were solid in that set too and that was a deck i I liked a lot and i i feel like i could beat you in that set yeah probably (laughs) I have some um, other ideas, but but what are you picking? Well, so so there are so many layers to this question, right? The first is would I pick a so sealed sets the sets the the playing field quite a bit, right? Because it's random. Like you're not you're not curating a deck out of cards that are open from a ton of packs. You're mm-hmm. you're opening six packs and you've got to deal with what you've got. So my mind immediately goes to like what's a format where there are lots of decks that work? And I mm. I kind of thought Kaldheim in a way because like there aren't that many decks that work, but like the decks that do work play every color. <laughs> so you yeah. can make a deck work as long as you get one or two linchpin pieces. Plus black white's the best deck in that format. So, you know, you're just going <laughs> to, you're just going to open black. You white would play black white. I would play five color snow. <laughs> the other, th- so like 
uh, yeah, my mind wants to go to deck to formats that have decks that, that are just good across the board. So you don't have to worry about like, Oh, my pool was crap. Like no matter what you open, you you're doing okay. Interesting. This is two totally different approaches. I'm hoping to just spike the, like the bombs and like hope that I open just a good deck and hope that you don't. Whereas you're saying play it flat across the board. Not necessarily flat. Cause I think there have been sets where like all decks are good, but some are still slightly better than others. And so what I would be hoping for is I'm assuming that we're both playing the same format. It's not that we get to pick the one we want and then we play those against each other. Yeah. yeah. Which is a totally different dynamic. So my thought is like, if we're both opening, we both have pools where like we're pretty much guaranteed a good deck. Then it comes down to gameplay and maybe getting a bomb or two over your opponent. And I think that maybe could favor me. I think in general, you're just a better magic player than I am. The The student has surpassed the master in this, in this perspective, in my bit. opinion. But I think that would be my best bet. If I'm, if I'm hoping to spike, like just open a pool that is incredible. There's such a high percentage of, of those situations where I just open crap and then I lose by default. So I'd rather get an average, my average to be higher. So I have a better chance of winning. While we're being objective here, I think you can play up to your strengths and my weaknesses. Like, for example, I tend to be pretty bad at sets where aggro is not the thing. Yeah, true. And I'm often very good in those sets. Yeah. If you're supposed to, like, try to go over the top here. I mean, the snow deck is a deck that I struggle to play against a lot of the times. Um, Some other examples. The question with the snow deck, though, is, like, if I don't open Svela, do I actually do anything? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you can wind up in like a like a blue reddish, like a blue red green deck that just doesn't well, have Svela. I mean, the the blue red blue red giants in that format was pretty good. Black black white was pretty good if you could get the right pieces. Um, See, that's the thing. I would probably wind up in like a green white or a um, black white aggressive deck, and then just get curb stomped by your snow deck. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, definitely and, what I would want to lean toward. But you would also just open like two Svelas and a Goldwing pick and like win anyway. <laughs> Well, well, um, I think on the other side, I would probably go for a format that I could pilot with my eyes closed. What the first thing that came to my mind uh, ahead of anything else was Zendikar Rising. I thought of that um, too for that as a good one for you. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like I can just, I actually did just do this with my students. I can just look at a sealed pool and be like, all right, I know where this is going. Like these are the cards. I think I've played more Zendikar Rising than most other formats recently. So I, I, I feel confident in it. And oh, wait a minute. I'll just pick a format that you didn't play. Duh. Yeah, I, I was thinking Ikoria one. would be an easy one for you to <laughs> I, just Ikoria. Yeah, yeah. I, I just I just choose Ikoria. Um, conversely, you played Magic before me, so you could pick. But one I wasn't playing limited time. at that time. Yeah, okay, that's true. And I was playing super casually, so I'm not sure that would like actually help me. Though that said, you hate Eldrazi, so you're not going to play any <laughs> of them. And therefore, if I open good Eldrazi cards from like Rise of the Eldrazi, I'll just win because you you won't want to play against them. So that's true. I, I would just concede the moment I saw a Devoid creature, or a colorless nonsense. Ooh, that's also a, a, an avenue to take. You just pick like the objectively worst set anybody has ever played, like Battle for Zendikar. Oh, and, yeah. And then just like it comes down to total skill at that point because <laughs> huh. every deck is awful. Or you would you would know that I'd probably favor a green deck of some sort, pick Battle for Zendikar, and then watch me try to build like a like a blue-green converge five color. <laughs> and it wouldn't work. And it wouldn't work. <laughs> That said too, you could also just pick something wacky. Like, I guess you can't, you can't, he's asking for one set here. So it's not like I can say chaos, but like, I don't know. Mm. Um, what was the recent modern master set that we did sealed? That was like a ton of fun. And we both played some yeah. ridiculous decks. We, we did play some nonsense. I was on what green, red storm. You know what? Let's actually, okay. 
now that I'm thinking about this, the wheels are turning a little bit. Assuming we're in a position where like somebody's got a gun to our heads and is forcing us to play to the death like this, yeah. and we are actually still cool with each other. It's it's one of the unsets. Just let all the randomness <laughs> let one of the let the randomness decide who wins. Have and some who fun loses. on the way out. Yeah. If we were like actively trying to survive this and like make sure the other person didn't, then yeah, I mean, all of the previous things we said would be true. But I think if we we were still cool with each other, we still like we didn't want to kill either of the other. Yeah. One of the onsets would probably have to win. Now we actually got a, a bit of a thread of responses coming from Sirkovitz's question because it was obviously a banger. So. I mean, Wolverine noted that those are some pretty serious consequences. But Andy said, well, what if we just throw the match because we care about each other and love each other too much? And that's honestly something we'd probably do. Yeah. Again, uh, assuming uh, actually that's a fair question to pose to you just out of curiosity. Like if the if if not the assumption, if we were told flat out, like if you tie or you throw the match, like you die anyway, like where would you stand there? Like, would you would you throw the match? to let me survive? Would you just like fight it out? Like what, what would be, we're getting dangerously close to like a, uh, like a Hawkeye black widow end game deal sort type of thing here. Right. Like, was that end game? Was it the one before it? Whatever. It, 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 we know what we're talking about of, uh, each of us getting like, we, we'd both be like, no, um, I, I pay 20 life to this card. <laughs> and like the other person's like counter that. No, I do it. Uh, so I, I don't know. Now we're also getting dangerously close to trolley problem territory where it's like, well, maybe one person should live. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess philosophically you could work out like who is contributing the most to the society and therefore that person should survive just to continue their work. Um, that would argue that would not arguably that would be you. I would think you're, you're actually like teaching real people and just helping companies <laughs> be better at being companies. But at the same time, then it's like. No, I, I can't. I, I can't even express <laughs> this. Is, this is hurting my brain too much because like one of us would be like, okay, well, I don't, I know exactly how this would go. We would both be mind gaming this so many levels. We'd be like, all right, well, he's going to try to lose. So I'm going to try to lose, but then he's going to try to, so I should try to actively win against him so that he can like use the kill spell on my, like this would be a mess, dude. <laughs> it, would, it would be a serious mess. We should try this sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Moon responded saying, what set is most likely to end up in a draw? So, so how, how would we like best draw a game from this? I guess we need to make sure what Strixhaven has a card that lets both players draw three, right? So we'd have yeah. to like play out our whole decks and then like target cast that draw three each and then both uh, lose at the same time. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. Any sets that have cards that like Platinum Angel where like you can't lose and your opponent can't win is a good way to do that. Yeah, if you could get two platinum angels on the field. I was thinking of like um like an infinite loop, like a game breaking loop. I can't think of any of those recently. The only piece that comes to mind is Polyraptor. I don't think there was a hard infinite in that set though. I think the, the Forerunner of the Empire. Somebody. Yeah, Forerunner of the Empire, you, you could you could make like a like ten of them or something, but I don't think you could go infinite with Polyraptor. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I guess also if you could just get into a complicated enough board state where like neither of us actually know what's going on, that, that might work. We just take forever to play the game out because we're, we're too dumb to figure out the board. Yeah. Or like Theros Beyond Death and we both play Thassa's Oracle decks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, I'm sure we could work out a way to have us both like play Thassa's Oracle at the same time or something where like they both hit the field at the same time. Yeah. Or we both happen to get the, um, the Jace from War of the Spark where like if we mill ourselves, if we mill ourselves out, then we win. And we both just win at the same time. But mm. that's like getting into like nitty gritty cards in a particular set. So like if you're generically asking what set is most likely to end up in a draw, I don't 
I don't know an easy answer to that question. Like nothing jumps to mind as a, as a set that's designed in a way that across the board, we can kind of like has a higher percentage of us opening decks that are going to end in a draw. I don't remember the last time I drew in limited, at least not I don't know that I ever have. you can time out like, uh, cause timing out, that's one thing. Sure. Um, if you're in like game three and, and you go to turns and everything and no one wins, then sure. That's a draw, but I don't think that would count. I feel like our, uh, yeah, we're not Whoever on a clock doing at this, this point. To us. I guess Sirkovitz is the one with the guns to our, to our heads. I feel like Sirkovitz wouldn't, wouldn't allow that. I feel like we'd have to uh, we'd have to play it out fully. Yeah, yeah, that's a difficult question. And then Mina Kang followed up with that. What's the penalty for slow play? <laughs> if losing the game is death, what's the penalty for slow play? <laughs> it's it's like when death row inmates are like, actually, uh, for my last meal, I'd kind of like this rare fish that's caught like off the the coast of this foreign country. Better to go start hunting for it. Or like if someone asks for like one million cheeseburgers, you know, but what's the magic equivalent of that? Well, I was thinking like in terms of a death thing, like what if the death method is actually mana burn and like you actually get burned <laughs> by leaving mana up? Oh man. Well then you just want to, then you just want like a mana intensive format. Yeah. Yeah. Any of the like go big deck uh, formats would do that. Or you just never play your lands. You just like, <laughs> <laughs> you just, you yeah, just you draw. All right, go, all right, go. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, well, that, that was everything. Those are all we the questions it. we got. Yeah. You know, like an hour and a half plus into the <laughs> episode, we did did a pretty solid job here, I think, of uh, covering all these things. Thank you so much to everybody who submitted questions. Thank you so much to everybody who's been listening for the last year plus. We're hoping to make year three better than the previous two, of course, and we'd like your help to do that. So definitely check out the episode description to see the form where you can give us feedback on um, some of the segments that we do, the topics that we cover, any of that kind of stuff. We want you to help us make the show better so that you enjoy it better. So definitely check that out. It's in the episode description and we'll, we'll post it on Twitter too, but uh, the episode description is going to be the easiest place to find it. Now, of course, we got one more big thing before we go. I've got a nice fancy wheel here that I'm going to spin. All right, so Zach and I can both see this wheel. I'm going to give it a spin. Everyone that submitted the question has their name on here. And the winner of a brand new box of Draft Chaff Custom Sleeves is Wolverine. Congrats. It took a long time for that wheel to stop spinning. A little longer than I expected. But uh, congrats, buddy. Some, some Draft Chaff Sleeves are coming your way. Yeah, so we'll be in touch to uh, figure out, you know, addresses and, and shipping and all that stuff. But congrats, Wolverine. Thanks for submitting the questions. And um, thank you all for for your questions as well. Again, if you're not already in the Discord and you want to be able to contribute to our listener question of the week and again, give us feedback on the show and such um, throughout the weeks outside of just the form that we're putting in the episode description, uh, jump in the Discord. It's it's a great place to be in, and our community over there is really awesome. So we'd love to have you there. If you'd like to support the show directly, keep us doing this for another year. Plus, jump over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod. Again, we really can't thank all of you patrons enough. It's been an incredible year as well as... Uh, the first, I think this was probably the, the best year we've had uh, of the show, just being able to keep up with it consistently. And we've done some yeah. pretty solid, uh, fun episodes this year. So thank you all for that. And if you want to find us outside of the Discord, you can find us on Twitter at DraftChaffPod. Thanks, folks. And we'll catch you next week. All right. Now, one thing I can promise is that our upcoming year, it's going to be even worse. I mean, I mean better. It's going to be even better <laughs> than our even last one. Even worse. Even worse. So one thing that I think would make our next year incredible is if we got to meet some listeners in person, which has happened on occasion, happens rarely. But look, if this whole magic Vegas, the gathering thing happens, uh, I would be absolutely down. Uh, what would we do if we had a meetup? Like, where would we want to have it? 
Well, I don't know anything about Vegas, so I would have to do some research to figure out like a good spot to do it if we weren't going to just do it on like convention grounds. Um, that said, like Ben and I are seriously discussing trying to make it to this thing. So if you are also on the fence or like interested in trying to meet us and you're going to be there, like we are going to probably set up a channel in the Discord for Vegas if we can make it out there and yeah, um, make sure that we get to you know, maybe jam some commander games, get into like some sealed pools together, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, maybe just a restaurant nearby that would, that like suits everybody's fancies or a bar or something would be a good place for meetup. All right. I'm going to put it out there right now. Every listener that we meet up with, will buy you a drink. <laughs> I'm putting right. it out there right now. All right. And Hey, if you're a patron, think of it this way. You're just getting your money back. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I, I think that's a pretty solid deal and it's out there. So we're doing it. Um, but yeah, if you, if you're considering going to Vegas and, um, have started to th- think about it or whatever, let us know, uh, the more, the more the merrier. And we definitely would like to try to make something a little more, um, like solidified, I guess, like a structured concrete. sort of, yeah. Cr- concrete meeting or meetup or whatever. Um, and if not that, then like, we'll see you at the convention, but we'll probably have a meetup. So 